You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States and the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Disclaimer, the opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individual's employers, nor the official opinions of C19. Let me set the scene. It is 1845. We're walking through the Boston Common, a public park in the heart of the city. On our walk, we pass many different people, hurried men rushing to work, upper-class women taking a leisurely stroll. (laughs) And then we see young, impoverished children begging for money. Some who have no living guardians. And while there are orphan asylums and almshouses that might take these children, these homes and their often poor living conditions are not a very attractive option. Think Oliver Twist here, but private American versions. As we turn the corner out of the park onto Tremont Street, we walk into a small office occupied by two women in their early 40s. These two women are Anstris and Eunice C. Fellows, sisters and natives of Massachusetts. Both women are unmarried, without biological children of their own, and somehow have a greater impact on the children of New England than any mother at this time. Inside this tiny office, the Fellows sisters are scribbling away at their editorial articles, meeting with prospective new agents, editing articles from contributors, completing the essential tasks for their revolutionary mission. These women have founded and are currently operating the first adoption agency in the United States in the form of a reform periodical. Only eight years after their periodical began its publication, the state of Massachusetts, the state in which they focused their efforts, passed the Adoption of Children Act of 1851. This legislation allowed adoptive parents to receive full rights as parental guardians, safeguarding the permanence of the placement and the potential inheritance. And while it is difficult to know how much impact the sisters had in the promotion of this legislation, it is impossible to argue with their cultural impact, an impact that no doubt encouraged lawmakers to consider how to accommodate these new families. Despite their enormous impact on American child-rearing practices, and our culture today, really, these revolutionary sisters have been all but forgotten in our history books. But why should we remember them? What exactly was so subversive about the Fellows Sisters' mission? My name is Sophia Hadley. I'm a doctoral candidate at Boston University, completing my dissertation on neighborly adoption in mid-19th century literature. In this podcast, I will walk through the history of orphan care and adoption up to the 1850s to show the seismic shift that occurs in orphan care, a shift whose effects can still be felt today, though adoption as we know it today is associated with a child's entrance into a private, domestic family as opposed to a public institution, this was not always the case. It is essential to see this individualistic cultural shift from public to private, 
not as inevitable, but rather debated and contested at the time. And we'll look closely at the fellow sisters leading this charge. What was their mission, and how did they envision its execution? So first, let's dive into some history of adoption to begin. As many of you might be thinking right now, the practice of adoption has been around for centuries. Ancient Greek and Roman societies even had formalized processes for adopting children. Noble men and women without children of their own could legally adopt a child, primarily for the purpose of inheritance and carrying on family name and legacy. Perhaps the most notable example of this is Caesar Augustus, who was adopted by Julius Caesar. Marianne Novi also discusses an informal practice common in ancient Greece, in which adults within a community informally took in children who were otherwise abandoned or without guardians. This charitable practice was not protected through legal means. In the early modern world, orphan care started to become increasingly state-regulated, in Britain, according to the Poor Relief Law of 1601, local parishes would be responsible for any parentless child in their community. Often, however, this meant that church wardens and overseers would bind out these children as servants, as they saw convenient. These new guardians typically viewed the child as a member of the household staff or as an apprentice, not as a member of the family. Across the Atlantic, in the early history of the American Puritans, adoption was more readily encouraged than in Britain. As Carol J. Singley discusses, there was a religious argument for adoption in colonial America, even though, just as in England at this time, the practice still had no legal sanction. However, as in Britain, though these children were welcomed into the home, they were often not considered to be an equal member of the family. This understanding continued on into the 19th century, even as concern for child welfare began to gain attention in public discourse. In Catherine Mariah Sedgwick's 1837 novel, Live and Let Live, Sedgwick even critiques this kind of treatment. Mrs. Broadson, a cruel mistress who hires the protagonist as a maid, tells another character, I have often wondered that housekeepers in the country do not more frequently secure help by taking children to bring up. Young children may always be obtained, and care and kindness, while they are too young to render much service, is amply paid afterward. Sedgwick uses the language to bring up, set in quotation marks, to highlight the vague and often duplicitous way that the term was used. While bringing up a child could mean raising a child as a proper member of the family, it could also be used to mean simply providing for their physical needs. Without a strict definition, the concept could be used to manipulate vulnerable children, to render much service from them. Therefore, the practice of adoption, though more common in the United States than in England, often yielded similar results. Displaced children were to be secured a place to labor, not just to live. Alongside this pseudo-adoption model, another rising solution for displaced children was practiced, institutional care. 
In England, this primarily meant the rollout of state workhouses after the Poor Law of 1834. In America, this meant the rise of private orphan asylums. According to Robert H. Bremner, in just a 20-year span, 1830 to 1850, benevolent individuals and religious ethnic groups founded 56 institutions for orphans across the United States. Susan Whitelaw Downs and Michael W. Sheridan note that almost five times the amount of children found themselves in institutional care from 1820 to 1850. This outpaces the population growth two times over. This significant increase in the orphans in need of care and the houses founded to care for them spawned much discourse among American thinkers and writers. Two such thinkers were Anstrus and Eunice C. Fellows, the heroines of our story. In 1842, they started a periodical entitled The Social Monitor and Orphans Advocate, later renamed The Orphans Advocate and Social Monitor. The journal was originally intended to be a sort of general expounder of the social duties and to pursue the protection of orphans and plans for their benefits. While the first year's issues mainly center around general didactic teaching that is familiar in periodicals of those days, with articles entitled A Condemnation of Lying and Instructions for Proper Bathing for Children, the following year, the fellow sisters began to gain productive focus, setting out their revolutionary plan for childbearing. Moving away from an institutional model of care, the sisters promote adoption of orphans into local families. Like the British parish system before it, their movement focuses on the local community, the neighborhood, to provide for the care of these children. However, unlike this system, they insist that these children be considered as members of the family, not as laborers or second-class citizens within the home. This vision of adoption thus relies on two central features— an ideal placement must be within a family and within one's local community, the neighborhood. Let's first discuss some of the reasons that the fellow sisters privilege the family unit over institutional care. In defining the essential features of the family, the sisters continually return to the significance of diversity of sex and age within the natural family structure, particularly over against the uniformity of an institution. Discussing institutions in the first issue of 1843, the sisters write, Asylums do not meet the wants of the child whose nature is adapted by the creator to the circumstances with which he is intended that it should be surrounded namely the family, consisting not of one age and sex, but of old and young, male and female, engaged in the various busy scenes of life. In this passage, the fellows make an expected appeal to nature. Birth into a family unit is a circumstance which God, quote, intends that children should be surrounded, end quote, a circumstance that they are divinely adapted to. What is unexpected is that often this kind of appeal to nature prioritizes the biological component of the family. 
Even today, individuals often refer to one's biological children as natural children. Fellow sisters, however, defy this expectation here in a particularly clever rhetorical move. Instead of suggesting that it is the biological component of the family that necessitates the child's best interest, they suggest that it is the gender and age diversity of a family that the child needs to thrive. A family for the fellows is not predicated on blood, but rather variety of age and sex, old and young, male and female. They also add that a family is engaged in the various busy scenes of life. Life in an institution was monotonous and fairly isolated from the outside world. Oftentimes, children raised in institutions would not be privy to adult conflict or even everyday occurrences until they were old enough to be sent away to work. Here, the sisters suggest that age and sex diversity, as well as exposure to the conflicts associated with it, are crucial features of the family, and thus crucial features for a child's healthy development. This definition of family helps to explain why Asylum's responses to the fellows' criticisms continued to be refuted throughout their years of publication. In Susan L. Porter's examination of mid-19th century orphanages, Porter discusses the conflict that begins to emerge between Asylum managers and new adoption advocates like Anstress and Eunice Fellows. Porter observes that the asylum managers defended themselves against criticisms, insisting that an asylum could approximate the family, and that managers remained convinced that orphanages served children better than temporary institutions or adoption agencies. According to the fellow's definition of a family, an asylum could do little to approximate it. In fact, in a humorous response to a reader's letter in which she calls an asylum a family, the sisters write, Suppose you call a horse an elephant. Does that make it so? Our plan of operations is to place needy children in families, not cob house families. If others desire to call it a family or a church or an elephant, we have not the slightest objection. It has nothing to do with us. Though many asylum managers saw themselves as surrogate mothers, they could not meet the fellow's requirements for a family. They could not reflect the gender diversity of the conventional family unit, as many of these institutions were segregated by sex. Especially during this time, families were often large. A typical child within a traditional home would likely have many brothers and sisters. At an asylum, they might simply have many brothers or sister figures. In addition to diversity of sex, many domestic homes were still multi-generational. Children might live with grandparents or extended family members, a feature that an asylum could not approximate, save the few older managers themselves. So let's talk about a specific conflict that happens between asylum managers and the sisters. The July 1848 issue will help us do just that. The sisters discuss taking a trip to Philadelphia to visit and review many charitable institutions. Though critical of institutional care in general, the women praise the condition of an asylum called the Orphan Society and the character of its managers. They wish, quote, success to it and its benevolent supporters and managers, and write, 
We think the children better be made the adopted sons and daughters of worthy people, but if benevolent persons choose to expend their exertions in providing for the little ones in asylums, instead of finding them homes and families, we are still happy that the needy are removed from want, though not placed in the best situations. The sisters, though complimentary of the particular asylum, represent the option as a clear second choice to adoption. Two months later, in September of 1848, the fellows are faced with the practical consequences of this conflict. In an article entitled, Which is the Better Provision?, written by the fellows, the sisters recount an experience stemming from their interaction with the asylum managers. They recall their interaction with a beautiful little boy and girl that they met in the asylum and their desire to see them the happy inmates of a worthy family. When they return to Boston, the fellows meet an esteemable couple who show interest in adopting these children that the women described earlier. Upon writing the managers about these potential new parents, the fellows receive a rejection of their request, informing the sisters that, quote, as these children were orphans, they could not entrust them among strangers, end quote. These managers viewed themselves as entrusted with the care of these children. They assumed the role of the guardian for these children that have no parents. And in doing so, the managers do not want to release their protection of the children to an unfamiliar couple, even for the potential outcome of a settled family. This very conflict helps us understand the fellow sisters' answer to the question, which is the better provision? While the asylum managers view childhood in an asylum as a better provision than the risk of life with an unknown family, the fellow sisters deem that an erroneous estimation of things, according to them. Appealing to longer-term consequences of being raised in an asylum, the sisters argue that upbringing in an institution means that the children, upon adolescence, will be bound out to service or trade, quote, to lead lives very different from what would in the other case be their lot, end quote. Then they ask readers to consider what they might want for their own child if their child was left an orphan, concluding that only unnatural persons exist who would decide against the family home. The writers here employ empathetic identification with deceased parents. If the parent reading the article would prefer their own child to be placed in a family as opposed to eventually placed out to labor, why should they support any other alternative? By personalizing this conflict for readers, the fellow sisters galvanize readers who might have previous sympathy for displaced children, but were perhaps unaware of other potential solutions for providing for them. To recap a bit, according to the Fellows sisters, adoptive placement into a domestic family as a proper member of the family was the most appropriate solution for a displaced child's best development. And though this argument might sound fairly conventional today, the conflict with the asylum managers shows just how revolutionary it was for those living in the 19th century. Displaced children belong in families like other children. In addition to emphasizing the benefits of adoption into families, Antris and Unice Fellows also stress the importance of the local neighborhood 
in the care of displaced children. In an issue of the periodical from July of 1846, the Fellow Sisters emphasized the importance of care being local as opposed to institutional. The sisters encourage readers, let everyone look after his own relations, his own neighbors, his own brothers and sisters in the church, his own associates, those who stand dear to him by any ties of life. The relief we extend to those who are near to us is peculiarly adapted to do good. Poor people are sometimes found imposing upon a benevolent society or when the shame attaching to the name of pauper is torn away upon the town, but they do not so impose upon their own near and dear friends. In this passage, the fellow sisters specify what they mean by community, relations, neighbors, fellow church members, associates, in other words, anyone with whom they have any ties of life. The sisters urge readers to adopt orphans or displaced children whose parents they might have had a relationship with. They argue that this kind of charity is peculiarly adapted to do good, because then the needy do not have to impose upon benevolent societies. Helping someone near and dear to oneself is not an imposition, they imply. It is only a natural adaptation. So now that we know the Fellow Sisters' proposed vision of adoption in the nation, placement into local neighborhood families, how do the sisters seek to accomplish this goal? Why publish a periodical as a way to place children into these neighborhood families? While the vehicle of the periodical is not just accidental to their mission, but central to it in many ways— in the January 1843 issue, one of the first issues with their new name, the Orphan's Advocate and Social Monitor, the sisters explain their motivation. They write, We propose, therefore, by means of the paper, first to awaken sympathy, and second to direct it in the proper channel. There are probably no persons in the community who do not believe that poor and fatherless children ought in some manner to be provided for, and none, perhaps, but are even willing to do something for them. But there are many who have not considered that the poorhouse is no fit place for them, and few there are who do not esteem a place in the orphan asylum as an ample provision. In this passage, we hear two purposes of the periodical, the first to awaken sympathy, and the second to direct it in the proper channel. But while the fellow sisters suggest that this paper is to, quote, awaken sympathy, they also write that there are probably no persons in the community who do not already believe that displaced children should be cared for. The fellow sisters acknowledge a pre-existing sympathetic cultural sentiment toward displaced children and even a willingness to do something for them. They do, however, suggest that the biggest problem is that these individuals haven't considered how to best properly provide for these children. In fact, to many sympathetic persons, institutional care seems to be ample provision for displaced children. The fellow sisters suggest to an already receptive audience that there is something better to be done for them. They see their job as educating them 
on this new mission through the periodical. This education takes many forms. Many articles are editorials by the fellow sisters, like the ones we discussed before. There are poems, there are short stories. All of these are to direct sympathies toward a new mission of adopting children into local families in New England and in the broader world. In addition to awakening the public to this belief, they also plan for the periodical to be an instrument for change, at least until there is a significant cultural shift in the care of orphans. At the end of every issue of the periodical, since their second volume in 1843, the editors include a list of children needing homes and a list of homes willing to take in children. A typical listing included the town of the anticipated adoptee or parents, as well as the gender and age or desired gender and age of the child. For example, in Orphan Children Wanted, one listing reads, in Charleston, an infant girl will be adopted. And in Places Wanted, another reads, for a babe, a boy, four months old, and for boys, two, three, ten, and eleven years old, respectively. Some advertisements also specified race, either advertising black children in need of homes or families seeking black children. This created a dynamic we'll discuss more in a minute. Alongside this matching system, the editors hired agents. These agents not only traveled to sell subscriptions of the periodical, they also met with prospective families and children in need, making individual placements that weren't always recorded in the publication itself. Though never referred to as an adoption agency, the workings of the periodical, particularly in matching children in need to families wanting to take them in, operated very similarly to adoption agencies today. One major difference being that these adoptions had no legal protection for these new families. While the Fellow Sisters are consistent in their editorials about their vision for the care of displaced children, specifically that they seek to place children in local families as members of the family, not as laborers, these advertisements exhibit some potential inconsistencies in the practice of placing children. Listings sometimes include advertisements for families seeking apprentices or even children seeking positions as laborers. Other times, the listings are more vague, differentiating that a child be taken as opposed to adopted. Though the periodical never elaborates on these differences, it is likely that the term taken or a place in a family were used to denote a decreased obligation toward the child. Though a child may be taken into a family home, they might not be adopted as family. Tellingly, many of the advertisements for black children include these alternate terms, suggesting that some families looking to take in black children were looking to use them for their labor. This observation suggests that the fellows, and perhaps their readers, envisioned interracial adoptions to be more limited in scope. Though the periodical progressively extends adoption to black children, otherwise excluded by most asylums at that time, this opportunity appears to be significantly restricted and possibly exploitative. This variance in language for both white and black children also suggests that the fellow sisters, though visionary in their approach, 
problematically compromised some of these values in the execution of their mission. While the Fellow Sisters facilitated many successful adoptions through these channels, ultimately it is not their goal to be this permanent mediating body. Instead, they envision themselves as ushering in a new movement, a new attitude toward caring for displaced children that involves little to no organizational oversight. In the January 1847 issue of the periodical, they lay out these long-term goals. We seek to revolutionize the entire habits of the community in respect to the care of orphans. We strive to persuade men and women not to come to us, but to look about for the needy under the shadow of their own roots, to take them in. By appealing to the habits of the community, the fellows differentiate their aims from those of their charitable contemporaries. They envision long-term change for orphans as stemming from local community initiative as opposed to organizational or even political change. The fellow sisters urge readers not to come to them, but rather to be aware of those in need around them and spontaneously take them in. Ultimately, at least part of their vision came to fruition. As mentioned at the beginning of the episode, these hundreds of new families that the fellow sisters helped create, as well as the cultural conversation that they helped initiate, likely led to new legislation in their home state. In 1851, Massachusetts passed the Adoption of Children Act, securing the legal status of new adoptive families. Over the next quarter century, 25 more states would follow suit, creating similar laws. And while institutional care remained a prominent option for orphan care over the next century, adoption and foster care in family units increasingly grew to become the default form of displaced child care in the United States. And all of this was started by two single, imperfect sisters in a small office near the Boston Common. Their names were Anstris and Eunice C. Fellows. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at C19Podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.